Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Harriet Tubman, Martha Coffin Wright, and Frances A. Seward defied the social conventions of their day as fighters against the subject subjection of, of women and slaves in the 19th century. Dorothy Wickenden, the executive editor of The New Yorker, has woven the stories of these three co-conspirators and intimate friends and of abolition, the, the well, support of abolition, uh, also the, the Underground Railroad, the early women's rights movement, and the Civil War in her latest book, The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for uh, Abolition and Women's Rights. It's published by Scribner's and brings Dorothy Wickenden to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. You open your book with a description of the Fort Hill Cemetery in Auburn, a town in the Finger Lakes area of New York City. How significant is the location of Auburn to uh, being near the Canadian border? It's absolutely central. Uh, so the, it's a post-industrial town now, but it was a thriving, Auburn was a thriving industrial center in the 1850s. And it also happens to be almost exactly in the middle of New York State. So it turned out to be a, a natural route for Harriet Tubman to follow when she was engaged in her Underground Railroad operations, which took her, uh, it's really sort of straight from New York City often, straight across the state and then up into Canada, either from uh, Rochester or Buffalo. And, and going to Canada was uh, necessary because of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850? Yes, well that, so Harriet Tubman liberated herself from slavery in 1850. 49. The Fugitive Slave Law was passed in 1850, in 1850, and that was really what catalyzed her. She'd already been thinking about uh, bringing, bringing into safety, into freedom, the rest of her family who were all, all still stuck in slavery, except for her husband, who was a free black. Uh, and when the, when the Fugitive Slave Act passed, she decided that the time had come and she was gonna begin this series of extremely dangerous operations back into the Eastern shore where she had been enslaved and rescue every member of her family if she could. And then later she started bringing people who weren't members of her family out and we'll get to that in a little while. Uh, I'm sure all of my listeners know something about Harriet Tubman, but I suspect they're less likely to be familiar with Martha Coffin Wright and Frances Seward. How significant were their roles in the abolitionist and, and suffragist movements? They, they were, as I discovered myself, because I knew almost nothing about either one of them when I began this project some seven years ago, they were pivotal. And one of the things, one of the things I wanted to accomplish in this book was to explain and how the Underground Railroad worked. We often think about Harriet Tubman as this monumental figure who uh, was this Underground Railroad conductor who essentially kind of think of her on her own. And indeed, she did, she, she would go, go, she would infiltrate enemy territory and bring them at, bring these uh, uh, freedom seekers out. But of course she had help all along the way. And so the Underground Railroad was this very loose network of uh, uh, enslaved people, free blacks, white businessmen, white women, um, abolitionists in the North who wanted to be part of this enterprise, uh, virulently anti-slavery, uh, uh, anti tended to be you know, abolitionists who, want, who believed that abolition should happen immediately. So, so they, uh, they were yeah, they, abolitionists before they met Harriet Tubman. So, I'm sorry? So they were abolitionists before they met Harriet Tubman. Yes. Well, so the, in the Francis Seward and Martha Coffin Wright were, were close friends in Auburn, which was a conservative city at the town at the time. And they just became fast friends because they shared these very radical views about the right, rights for women. The, the movement hadn't yet really gotten off the ground and for abolition. Uh, the abolitionist movement was pretty, pretty well underway by the 1840s. So just, just when they met Harriet Tubman through mutual contact on the Underground Railroad, they were beginning to liberate themselves 
us from from what they saw as the kind of bonds that kept women, uh, you know, uh, in their proper place in America, which is to say with no political rights at all. So when they met Harriet Tubman, she embodied to them all of these beliefs that they had held abstractly. And then she was such an extraordinarily formidable character. Uh, she, she gave, they gave her support on her underground railroad operations and then they inspired her, uh, then she inspired them to become more radical themselves. Martha Wright was a Quaker mother of six and the Quakers were important uh, for the Underground Railroad all along. Uh, there are a number of stops in New York State before you even get to Auburn, uh, all, for, for example, Hills in Dutchess County, uh, where, um, where the Underground Railroad uh, uh, stopped, it took a stop before it moved up. Uh, she was the younger sister of the noted Quaker abolitionist Lucretia Coffin Mott. Uh, is it ironic that Lucretia Mott came up with the idea of reforming the position of women in society after she was one of the women who had been excluded from the World Anti-Slavery Convention that was held in London in 1840? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point about, the, about that convention. It's not ironic so much as completely explicable when you understand what what these women were fighting for and how they kept getting beaten back. So she was, Lucretia Mott was a really formidable figure in her, on her own. Uh, she was a Quaker minister. She was, she was tiny. She was about five feet tall and weighed some 95 pounds. But she had been uh, talking openly about women's rights and abolition since the early 1830s. So at this World Abolition uh, Convention in London, it, she, she was just completely, not, not surprised, but uh, appalled by the fact that women were forced to sit in the back of the room and stay silent throughout the proceedings because she was a full-fledged abolitionist by then, totally known by everyone in that world. So she used that occasion to just talk about how ridiculous this was at a convention held to promote human rights, to keep, to keep women, you know, chained off in the back of the room. Didn't many members of the abolitionist movement oppose public activities by women, especially uh, if they wanted to make speeches, as Lucretia Mott often did? Well, this caused a break uh, in, in uh, 1839 or 1840 within the American Abolitionist Society, led by William uh, Lloyd Garrison. Garrison himself was all for allowing women into the society, but the more con conventional, more conventional abolitionists thought that was just one step too far, and so the the society split, and they they stomped off. Uh, and founded their own separate society, more conservative members, when women were allowed in as members. You speculate that Mott introduced Tubman to both Wright and Seward in, in the late 1840s. Is that just an educated guess? It's a pretty well-educated guess. I So, of course, I had to do exhaustive research for this book. And um, among the historians who have written about, who've written biographies of Lucretia Mott, uh, there is a consensus, and, and I agree with it. And in fact, I, I probably take it even one step further, saying it, it had to be Lucretia Mott who introduced uh, her sister Martha to Harriet Tubman. So Martha lived in Auburn. She made annual visits to see her family in Philadelphia, where Lucretia lived with her family. And uh, it was it, as soon as um, Harriet Tubman found her way to Philadelphia, which is where she settled for through her early years uh, as a, as a, as a uh, freedom seeker, she immediately got to know everyone, all the abolitionists in Philadelphia, and became quite close to Lucretia Mott. So Harriet Tubman would have been looking for, as, as members of the Underground Railroad always were, would have been looking for contacts along the rest of her route. And so both Martha Coffin Wright and Frances Seward would have been you know, perfect contacts, utterly trustworthy, completely agreed with the cause. So my speculation and historian speculation is that uh, when, when Martha was on one of her family visits to Lucretia, Lucretia introduced the two of them. And then when Harriet Tubman went wound her way next through Auburn, it would have been uh, Martha who introduced Tubman to Frances Seward. 
Do so you both argue of that those women, both of those women by the by 1849, uh, but, but by, by the late 1840s, they were both members of the Underground Railroad and uh, harbored fugitive slaves in their basement kitchens. Do you argue that because they weren't in the public sphere, women like Seward and Wright had a moral clarity about the evil of slavery that many male politicians lacked? I, I do think that. I, and I, it, but to, and if you wanted to put it a different way, you would say that it was, in some ways, it was easier for them to, to see this clearly because women, so way back to the time when Mary Wollstonecraft was writing, um, women were, she wrote that, that women were little better, little more than chattel because by law and by English law and then by American law at that point, at that stage uh, up until you know the 1840s, in most states, women had no rights at all. They did. They they became when they got married. They became their husband's property. So the, the women were very sensitive to the feeling of being utterly demeaned, exploited, and and seen as 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 uh, beneath beneath uh, any recognition of any kind. So in some ways, women. So these women, Harriet Tubman and Martha Coffin Wright and Frances Seward, in some ways had more in common, despite all their differences, than they had with their husbands. And so Seward, uh, who was, you know, one of the most important and, and seen as one of the most radical statesmen of the 19th century, he was anti-slavery. He was ostensibly for all for women's rights. But he was a politician and he had to work within the system. So he, this was what he was constantly trying to tell his abolitionist friends. And he had many abolitionist friends and he had an abolitionist wife. And he was constantly trying to, to they were with, so people like Frederick Douglass were sending him frequent letters, urging him to be more, more even more forthcoming about slavery, to, to, to advocate the immediate abolition of slavery. And but but Seward, for all of his his progressive ideas, was a politician, and he would respond, "No, it is you know you abolitionists are the ones who lobby in the streets and from the pulpit, and then once the public is ready, I as a legislator can introduce laws to get the these unjust laws overturned." Seward had been the the governor of New York State and a U.S. senator before he served as Lincoln's Secretary of State, and then. Later, many people will remember, I'm sure, from learning about this in school, that he arranged for the purchase of Alaska from, from Russia, which was called Seward's Folly at the time. Yes, but that was much later yeah. in, in his career. That was when he was ser serving under Andrew Johnson as president. So that's that, that's beyond the scope of my book. But yes, he had he had an unbelievably long political career, and uh, you know he had the last laugh on Alaska. My guest uh, is uh, Dorothy Wickenden, whose latest book is *The Agitators: Three Friends*. Who fought for abolition and women's rights. It's published by Scribner. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. So from what you've been saying, it's obvious that there were links between the suffragist and abolitionist movements. Yes, they were very, very close. And so at the, at the very first American Anti-Slavery Society convention, which was held in Philadelphia in 1833, Lucretia Mott, you know, attended, she went and she actually spoke um, and made some suggestions about their, their platform, which of course caused, you know, a huge uproar in, in the crowd. So that, and that was some years before the, the, the American uh, Anti-Slavery Society split. Uh, however, so Lucretia Mott, because she was essentially at that point banned from being a member of that society, started the Philadelphia Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. And a number of those groups were springing up around the North. And when, so at that point, women began working together on their own, but following the model of their male uh, uh, abolitionist colleagues, 
about raising money, about petitioning, about publicizing the plight of the enslaved people. And so the, inevitably they were working hand in glove with, with people like William Lloyd Garrison who would speak you know, at their meetings and so on. And so it became, this was the way in the early years when women were, began, were beginning to sort of come to realize that they too needed more, they needed political rights, period. Uh, that was the beginning of their kind of awakening to their, their own form of enslavement. And so the first national women's convention took place in Seneca Falls in 1848. And that the two of the organizers of Seneca Falls were Lucretia Mott and her younger sister, Martha Coffin Wright. And Douglas was in attendance there and was a huge supporter of these of these women who were asking for their for their rights. You describe how post-Civil War tensions over whether black men or white women should get the vote divided the, the suffragist movement at first. It, very much so for many years. Uh, so Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, Martha Coffinwright worked very closely with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And right from, from the time of the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wanted to go full, full bore on this. And she felt that women had to have every single legal right that men had, which included the right to vote. And so a, a lot of their work involved um, suffrage for women. And the, you know, the country just wasn't ready for that yet. And so when, when the 14th and 15th amendment, when those, those amendments were under discussion in Congress, those three women were saying women should be granted the, the same rights that black men are, that you are discussing for black men. That of course didn't happen either in the 14th amendment or the 15th amendment. And when Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Martha to a somewhat, to a somewhat lesser extent saw that happening, they, they refused to support the 15th amendment and they, they broke with their, abol or their abolitionist friends, mostly broke with them. And, they, and, and so mostly it was uh, Stanton and Anthony with, with Martha following along with some regrets. Uh, who decided just to go off and, you know, continue to pursue their their crusade for the for the vote for women. And and Frederick Douglass is uh, an interesting example because, as you said, he was a supporter of these people. But uh, unlike Stanton and Anthony, uh, he uh, supported the Fifteenth Amendment despite the fact that it didn't include a woman's right to vote. He did absolutely, and and privately, so Martha Coffin Wright, who by that time had become very close to to Douglas, who invited, she invited him to her house for meals and to spend the night. That alone was just like a completely outrageous thing to do. Um, she insisted on full equality for for black people and and for women. Uh, so she, you know, she privately. Would would tell her husband, uh, you know, I'm I'm with Frederick Douglass on this, but she also said I I have to stand by, you know, these other friends, these these female friends, even when they do unwise things. Mm -hmm. So what she was referring to was this extremely um, uh, unpleasant, racist uh, series of statements that Stanton and Anthony began to issue as they argued for for women's suffrage. They began to demean black Americans. And, and Mar that made Martha incredibly uncomfortable, but she wouldn't break with them because they were her friends. And she said, I, I choose to stand with my friends, even when they do unwise things. So Douglas uh, was uh, as appalled as William Lloyd Garrison and all of those other uh, uh, um, abolitionists were. However, much later in 1888, when Stanton and Anthony started yet another uh, women's uh, group, an international group for international women. They invited Douglas to speak, and he spoke incredibly movingly about how much courage it took for women to stand up and make these demands on their own. Now, Douglas praised uh, Harriet Tubman in print. Did uh, Anthony and Stanton know Harriet Tubman? 
Yes. The, so Susan B. Anthony, I don't know so much about, about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She must have known her because she and, and Anthony worked so closely together. They, when, when, the, the, when the women split off and formed their own society, they, we know that um, Anthony got Harriet Tubman to become a member. And Harriet, and then she spoke before one of the, their conventions in Rochester. But Tubman was very savvy about this. And it was one of the things that Martha admired in her. She did, she never got embroiled in this internecine, very ugly internecine politics. She just rose above it somehow. She kept her eye on the ball. She wanted her, is in her view, Black Americans and white and black women all deserved exactly the same the same rights. And she would Tubman until her death in 1913, essentially, or a couple of years before that, when she got sick, she continued this crusade and she would speak to any group that asked her to speak, all black women's groups, uh, you know, integrated groups, or even just to Susan B. Anthony and when they were, when they were still off on their own, she would speak to them too. But she would say what she wanted to say. So when she spoke, to, when, when Anthony asked her to speak to this mo mostly white group of women, she talked about her underground railroad exploits and she made, she made her own agenda. Now, uh, during the Civil War, Frances Seward was an out spoken critic of Lincoln slavery policies, at least until the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, how did that sit with her husband? Who Not was very a... <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, it was in Even was... though he was an abolitionist himself. Well, he wasn't a full abolitionist. I mean, it may seem like a, a, a you know, not a real difference, but it, it sort of is. So he was a Republican and he actually thought Wait, And a Republican was, then was, was very, Wait, and Republican then represented very different attitudes toward yes. race than than we're uh, than is being suggested today. Yeah, almost the opposite, you could say. Um, the Democrats and the Democratic and the Republican Party have almost switched sides on on civil rights. Um, Seward, uh, and remember that the, the, the Republican Party was very young when Lincoln uh, won the presidency in 1860. It was, it was something that, that Seward had been lobbying for for himself for his entire political career. It was a crushing blow when he was not uh, nominated and then elected. Uh, but he became Lincoln's Secretary of State. And as it turned out, he and Lincoln were not only did they were they did they become very close friends politically they were almost entirely in agreement and they believed or they 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 insisted at the beginning of the war that it was a war to repair the union to save the union it was not a war to emancipate the slaves and when Seward made his final departing speech as U.S. Senator uh, after, you know, just before he was about to become Secretary of State. He said, in political affairs, we cannot always do what is absolutely right. And he was making that argument that this is, you know, this is this is how we are going to go forward. It was before the outbreak of the Civil War, although seven Southern states had seceded. He was desperate to save the Union. Frances, when she read, she was back up in Auburn. She lived in Auburn while he was in Washington, was just livid. And she wrote to him, wrote a letter to him and said, how can you say <laughs> that when you have dedicated your entire <laughs> life to this cause? And how can it be more important to, you know, keep together the, you know, the, this abstract idea of, of, of the union when 400,000 people are, are living in slavery? And then he wrote back and he said, I don't think you understand the politics of this. And so they, they had quite an amazing exchange of letters, um, very angry with each other until Lincoln did come around to figure out a way to constitutionally um, issue the Emancipation Proclamation. But even the Emancipation Proclamation only uh, was applied to the Confederacy uh, there were some border states uh, that uh, still maintained slavery. In fact, Harriet Tubman, who came from Maryland, would have remained a slave if she had been, if she hadn't escaped. 
Yes, and of course, this didn't go without notice among Harriet Tubman and Francis Seward and Martha Wright. Uh, and so, and that ultimately, the, the, the limits of, of the, uh, it was a war measure, the Emancipation Proclamation, and it was those limits that led the that led abolitionists to lobby for the Thirteenth Amendment to permanently erase slavery uh, from the country. How relevant were the class differences between the three women? Harriet Tubman was an illiterate fugitive slave, a religious Methodist. Wright was a middle class Quaker mother, a wife of of a, lo a local lawyer, and Seward was the privileged wife of a, of, of a famous politician. Interestingly, those differences mattered less than what they had in common. You said and they had was, an antipathy to pretentiousness. You, absolutely. All of them were, were <laughs> no nonsense, quite funny. Uh, Francis was the more serious of them, but Tubman could be just withering about the idiocy, idiocies of slaveholders, and she was and very funny. And uh, Martha Coffin Wright was merciless when she dissected, you know, the laws that were put in place by white men for white men only. So that all of that drew them together. And Interestingly, Martha less than Francis, but but Lucretia Mott, remember, was a Quaker minister. Quakers believe that they have an inner light and that they must must pay attention to it and do good in the world. And of course, the the and she was a member of the more radical Quaker sect, uh, and they they absolutely you know passionately believed in the end of slavery. So she felt that God was effectively speaking directly to her. So did Harriet Tubman. Tubman had visions. She heard God's voice. She, she never evinced any signs of, of fear when she was engaged in these operations. She says, no, I, you know, God tells me where to go and what to do, and I, I follow him. She absolutely believed that. So when, I think that when Lucretia Mott, who was much older, old enough to be Tubman's mother, when she met Harriet, you know, they must have had conversations that made complete sense to both of them. They, 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 they couldn't agree more about these issues. You mentioned then, Harriet's vision, uh, visions. Well, she had seizures, headaches, and ill health throughout her life. They all were the result of uh, something terrible that had happened to her when she was still a slave. Yes, and then, so the seizures gave rise to the visions. And she, um, this happened when she was a, a young girl and she was sent to a dry goods store uh, to pick up some supplies. And there was a, a young man there, an enslaved man who was on the run and the, that man's overseer was, was chasing him. And he picked up, the overseer picked up a, an iron weight from the dry goods counter and hurled it at the man to stop him. Mm. But it hit Harriet Tubman in the head and it cracked her skull. And it resulted in, you know, a life of just searing headaches. And uh, she really was disabled. But you know, for some miraculous reason, it didn't stop her. But she would, so she would have, she would sometimes just black out uh, in, the, in the middle of a sentence even. And then she'd come to, and then she would continue. But she would have these, these prophetic visions, which, uh, you know, are kind of extraordinary when you see what she was, what she was able to see uh, that other people couldn't see, and then they seemed to come true exactly when she said they would. So, but again, that was when she started hearing God's voice. And yeah. Francis, is just worth adding, was this kind of starchy, aristocratic, uh, Episcopalian, very a little snobbish, uh, but she had grown up, her father had been a Quaker, and his parents had been Quaker's. And, you know, over the course, course of her early marriage she 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 awakened to the to the sin of slavery as she saw it and to the abuses that men were perpetrating against their their wives his uh, her sister was a victim of spousal abuse so the again this is why these women all had quite a bit in common and they spoke the same language it didn't matter that harriet tubman couldn't read or write. She had memorized entire passages from the Bible, which were as important to Francis Seward as they were to her, as they were to Martha and to Lucretia. So that was one of the kind of revelations of doing this book, that, that class and race kind of kind of took a back seat to, to what they set out to achieve. And just think what they set out to achieve. It was just 
inconceivable that they would succeed. Well, and didn't yet, Martha Wright's neighbors? Got, didn't Martha you know, Wright's neighbors consider her a dangerous woman? They considered her a very dangerous woman, in part because she uh, she just led her life the way she wanted to. She didn't take her children to church. She refused to. She said, I, I teach them religion as I see fit. They don't need to read the Bible on Sunday if, if they don't want to. I, you know, I have every I, I believe I am bringing them up in, in the best way possible. And of course, it was the most radical way possible. Uh, so, you know, they and then in after the Seneca Falls Convention, where she met Frederick Douglass and became friendly with him, he would often come, you know, do his lecture tour across New York State. He, she would invite him to stop in Auburn, invite him to come in, have dinner or spend the night. And th so, of course, this became known to her neighbors. They, they didn't know about the under, earlier Underground Railroad uh, work. But when she she advocated complete social equality between Black Americans and white Americans. And so her, there was a lot of gossip in town. And one she overheard one woman at a party whisper to another uh, woman, that is Mrs. David uh, Coffin-Wright. She's a very dangerous woman. Well, how did the, the, those people respond when Seward sold some property to Tuppen in, well, uh, and that in the outskirts of Auburn? Yes, that was another, I, I, I can't say exactly how they responded, but by that time, well, first of all, my belief is that it is Francis Seward, not William H. Seward, who made the sale, because by then, New York had passed, thanks to all of the women, these women's organizing over the years, had passed a state law called the Married Women's Property Act, which at long last allowed women to keep whatever inheritance they brought with them into their marriage. So Francis happened to have brought in quite a large inheritance. It included properties all around Auburn. And for years, by the time the house was sold to Harriet Tubman, for years, the two of them, the two of the Sewards, had been selling these small plots of land with, with uh, houses on them to uh, free Blacks in Auburn because Black men couldn't vote unless they had, I think it was 200 or $250 worth of property. So they were doing this clearly uh, to integrate Auburn. And again, a very <laughs> unusual thing to do at the time. And they, they were beginning that, they were in that process. And that was what must have given Francis the idea, who by then, this is now 1859, she had been running her, her little, uh, her stop on the Underground Railroad for, for a decade. She had known Harriet Tubman for a decade. And her, Harriet Tubman had taken her parents and her siblings all the way up to Canada. Her parents were ailing. Both Francis and, and Harriet had very strong family feelings. And Francis desperately wanted to do something more for abolition. She couldn't do anything in Washington because that was, a, you know, a, a state where a, a, a district where slavery was legal. She spent most of her time in Auburn. She had this great friend who was doing miraculous things on the Underground Railroad, and she decided it would be more convenient for her to live in Auburn. So she sold her, I believe, this house and seven acres just a mile down the street from the Sewards, and the sale took place. When, Auburn, when, when William H. Seward was on his way to Europe and Palestine for an eight-month for an eight-month trip, uh, so it, the paperwork was was finalized with with their son uh, William Jr. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. That's when I'm. Before we get back to my conversation with Dorothy Wickenden, I'd like to ask you to support the programming we bring you on Leonard Lopez at Large by calling 516-620-3602 right now or by going online to give to WBAI.org. Uh, 
Becoming a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And BAI buddies supply this station with a steady source of support so we can plan for the future. We have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy during today's show in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large. We would be happy to send you a copy of my guest, Dorothy Wickenden's book, the Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights as Our Way of Saying Thanks. Uh, you'll really enjoy this book. Again, all you need to do is call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org online and sign up to become a BAI buddy at the tax-deductible monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever is easiest for you. And that's it. We will take care of the rest. You don't even need to mention the book to the person at the WBAI call center or check any additional boxes online. My staff will make sure that you get it if you become a BAI buddy in the name of London Lopez at Large during today's show. But however you choose to donate, the important thing is that you do your part to keep the show and this legendary radio station alive, the only station in New York City that's 100% listener-sponsored without corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind, and none of the ads that other public stations uh, throw in, calling them funding credits. If you agree that independent media are more important now than ever, we need your help to keep it going. So one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602, or go to give2wbai.org online, and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large. A big thanks from all of us. And uh, now I'm back with Dorothy Wickenden, whose latest book is The Agitator's Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. It's published by Scribner. Let's talk a bit about Harriet Tubman, because she was an extraordinary woman. Did everyone recognize that at, at the time? She comes across in your book as no-nonsense, funny, prescient, strategically brilliant. Yes, she was. And I must say that that just about everyone who met her had that precise impression of her. Mm. So she, and this is what, it took me a little while to figure out how to write about her because of course there, she left no written record. Martha and Francis were both these fantastic correspondents and they basically outlined both their domestic lives and their political lives in the course of these wonderful letters. With Tubman though, I became convinced that she created, in effect, an oral history so that she would not be forgotten. She told the same stories of her life over and over again. And she was, uh, she, she, when she finally was able to speak in public, herself, she would attract big audiences, especially in Boston, which was full of abolitionists and transcendentalists, and, and basically act out her scenes from her life and members of the audience, including people she became quite friendly with the, the most important uh, public figures in the abolition movement would write down what it was like to, to listen to her and would write down what she said. And so to me, I, I felt like she was, she was a, um, she was very prescient. She understood the importance of what she was doing. She was a strategic genius, which you can see simply from looking at her decade of Underground Railroad mm. operations, where she used, she boasted late, late in life, I never lost a passenger, which is more than most conductors <laughs> can say. And, she so also, that, and also her work during the Civil War, which we'll get to in a moment. Yes, absolutely. So and then so that came into play there, and she just she was a born leader. There was just no question about it. She just evinced this sense of authority and command, complete confidence, and total focus on her mission. She never deviated from it, and everyone who saw her recognized that. And so it's quite remarkable to me that. When, so the Underground Railroad basically ceased to exist when the Civil War broke out. She was by then living in the house she bought from Frances Seward in Auburn, with, and she had brought down from Canada her, her family. So it was, it was a small farmhouse, quite full of, of her parents and, you know, a cousin and siblings and various people. And she wasn't cut out for domestic life at all. And she wanted to, she wanted to take part in the war. 
So she decided she had all these very important contacts in Boston. She got herself an audience with the governor of Massachusetts, who happened to be a, a very important abolitionist himself, who knew about her record uh, in uh, on the Eastern Shore and infiltrating enemy territory. She said, I want to go to, to Port Royal, South Carolina, which was by then, by that point in the war, was Union occupied, but surrounded by Confederates. And she told Martha before she left that she was going to perform a kind of secret service for the Union Army. She was, she, so she got permission through the, the, the governor to go down, you know, across uh, military lines. You had to get all kinds of permission to get, get down there. She got down there. She worked with a with a um, a charity group to it was it ended up ended up being called the Port Royal Experiment with to to integrate there were ten thousand enslaved people who had just been freed and they needed you know all kinds of social services and education and you know just about everything and abolitionists saw this as a great opportunity to help them so Harriet Tubman did that but she also became invaluable to the the officers, the union officers who were down there. She got to know many members of the local community who knew the territory. She convinced these union officers to let to give her the money to hire, I think she hired eight scouts in the end, local people who knew the river tides and where the torpedoes were underwater and where they watched the, the movements of Confederate troops. All of this was incredibly valuable information and Tubman would do some of it herself. And then she reported directly to these officers. They at that point were organizing a series of river raids into enemy territories to where they would land gunboats at plantations, uh, destroy the plantations, and then liberate the enslaved people on the plantations. So Harriet Tubman took part in the most ambitious of those raids up the Cumbee River, in which um, she joined. So there had been a lot of controversy about whether in the Lincoln administration about whether freed black men should be allowed into the army. And, and they, the first of those freed black soldiers were enlisted at Port Royal. So she accompanied a, a, an abolitionist uh, uh, colonel and some black troops, the first black troops of the war on this raid up the Cumbie River. They stopped at several plantations. They torched the plantations and they liberated 750 people. And after she got back to Buford, she dictated a letter to one of her most important Boston abolitionist friends, who by then was running a newspaper. And she explained what they had done. And she said, and she dictated the letter to someone in South Carolina. And she pointed out, don't you think we colored people are entitled mm -hmm. to some credit for that exploit? Well, so she said she worked with so many other things. She worked with that Colonel James Montgomery in the capture of Jacksonville, Florida. And hadn't she also uh, participated with John Brown to some degree before his raid on Harper's Ferry. He called her General Tubman. Yes, she well, so just to, for Montgomery, um, Montgomery was the real one who led the Cumbia yeah. River raid. So that was the raid that she took part in. And John Brown, and that's another really interesting earlier chapter in her life. She, John Brown saw her out when after she had left Philadelphia, she uh, before she bought the house from the Sewards, she settled in Canada. And John Brown, of course, knew of her exploits because everyone in who was an abolitionist knew about Moses, as she was called at the time. Um, and he was organizing his raid on Harper's Ferry. He went to he went to see her in Canada. He, he found her. He told her what he had in mind. He wanted her to gather some of the people, some of the men that she had she had freed and, and wanted her to lead his so-called troops. Now they ended up being, you know, some dozen, uh, it was this ragtag group of people. And he counted, he just assumed because, because he believed so much in his uh, expedition that she would join him. But to my reading, there, she never had any intention of, of joining him at Harper's Ferry. She knew, as Frederick Douglass did, that it was a complete 
suicidal mission. It had absolutely no chance of success. Moreover, Harriet Tubman, you know, no enslaved person who had freed him or herself would undertake such, such a thing. This was the this was a federal armory. I mean, it just was. It just made no um, no reasonable sense. Had no pro prospects of succeeding. However, Harriet Tubman idolized Brown because he was doing something for her people that she found so extraordinary. And she, like the, the abolitionists in Boston afterward, she considered him a martyr. And he, in that raid, it was a terrible failure on, on the most obvious level, but it really was the spark that lit the Civil War. So to Harriet Tubman, he was, he was kind of a Christ-like figure. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And my guest is Dorothy Wickenden, whose latest book is The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. It's published by Scribner. Uh, very quickly, because we've got a lot to cover, how did she uh, help these people escape? Uh, and do we know how many? I, I gather she did it mostly in the wintertime because it was easier to uh, avoid being caught. Yeah, so going back to our Underground Railroad expeditions, yeah. yes, which took place in the 1850s. Uh, so she she was she had a network of so she she couldn't read or write, but she was able to send dictated letters to people she trusted in the area, and through her contacts, there were you know it was a very very elaborate system that 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 was set up, but worked extraordinarily well. So she would send word uh, to a trusted contact that she would she would be there at a certain date and where where to find her. She often would uh, wait for the, her her passengers. Uh, in a place where white people didn't go, a, a black graveyard, for instance. And yes, she did it almost always in the depths of winter because it was harder to track people when the ground was frozen. And Christmas was a good time because people were, you know, the, the, uh, the slaves were given somewhat more freedom to visit their family members on other uh, farms. And so disappearances weren't immediately noticed. People were, you know, were celebrating. They were keeping a close eye on things. And they never, and this is why Tubman was so kind of scornful about these slaveholders. They never really understood how the Underground Railroad worked. Mm -hmm. No one knew that it was Harriet Tubman who was going to, I mean, none of, none of the slaveholders knew that it was, you know, one of their own who was coming back over a dozen times to basically, you know, rip out the foundations of slavery from under them. Um, one one uh, slaveholder on the Eastern shore said, you know, there's, this is a labyrinth that has no clue. I, they just couldn't figure out how it, how it worked. Uh, and it is kind of, it is just astonishing that it worked as well as it did. So she, in the end, she was able to even take away her elderly parents. The only member of her family who was left behind, who had not, not already been sold into the deep South, three of her other sisters, was another sister, Rachel, who lived on a nearby plantation and had two young children. And Rachel was unable to get to her at their, to Tubman at their appointed hour. And, and Tubman waited through a blizzard and she knew something terrible had gone wrong. And she waited a couple of days, Rachel didn't appear. Uh, she later learned that uh, Rachel had died and we don't know how, a couple of days before Tubman had arrived. You end your book two decades after the war, after the assassination of Lincoln, Reconstruction, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Did Harriet and Martha continue to communicate? Uh, well, in the case of, uh, of uh, uh, Mar uh, Harriet, France, well, yeah, Martha and, and Harriet, because Francis died two months after Lincoln was assassinated. Yes, and I'm not going to give too much away of yeah. the book, but that is true. She died at the age of 57, just months after uh, the end of the war. And um, her husband, what, an assassination attempt had been made on her husband's life. Yes, and she was she was witness to the, the horrific aftermath of that. And yeah, Seward almost died. Her two sons were attacked, et cetera. Um, and it really, it took a huge understandable toll on her. Her health wasn't good in any case. Uh, 
Martha continued her her crusades with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and the women's rights movement. Um, but she died Howard, relatively young as well, 68 yeah, in 1875. So, so then she, she, she was gone. And so neither of them saw ultimately sort of what, what transpired uh, on, on the two fronts, abolition and women's rights. Harriet Tubman, though, as I mentioned at the top, lived into the, uh, into the 20th century, which is just remarkable. And she kept going, you know, right up until the end. So, But mistreated, war, wouldn't you say? Because she didn't receive a regular salary for her military service or a pension. And didn't Congress even deny her a pension? Was it because she was a woman and and, and black or were there other reasons? I think reasons? it was more that they, so they, her various friends in Auburn, including Seward, applied to Congress for a pension on her behalf and pulled all this incredible paperwork together. She kept scraps of paper where she had received you know, uh, orders from these generals in South Carolina. Uh, it was big, you know, it was a big bureaucracy by then, and so it just took. In the end, she finally, through through the intercession of her congressman, she was she got a small pension as the wife of a deceased Union soldier, and that that was her second marriage to a man who fought in the Civil War, but she never never got paid for the work that she did for the Union Army. And that's, you know, again, you can sort of understand it on a bureaucratic level. She was she was doing this on her own and she blithely thought, well, I'll I'll get paid for all of this, you know, after the war. And she kept track. She did keep track of the hours she spent, you know, on, on her army work as opposed to her volunteer work with the Port Royal experiment. But she died, you know, impoverished. Nevertheless, she had succeeded in raising her final her final work, as she called it, was a humane nursing home on the grounds uh, she had bought from Francis Seward uh, for indigent uh, African Americans, and she worked for decades to raise the money for that project. You know, denying herself you know, any any comforts and. She succeeded. It was it was built, and now the National Park Service has taken over that property, and they're restoring it. and And so that'll be a companion site to the Underground Railroad National Park Service project that's down on the eastern shore, where Harriet did all those operations. Is there a large African American presence in Auburn? Yes, significant. Uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, there's so much more to talk about, but. Um, my great thanks to you for uh, giving us this hour, Dorothy Wickenden, whose latest book, her follow-up to her bestseller, Nothing Daunted, is The Ab the Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. It is published by Scribner's. What a pleasure. A pleasure for me, too. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you want to write me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you one last time to support the station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep 100% listener-sponsored radio alive in New York. So please, step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level that's comfortable for you by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we would be delighted to send you a copy of The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights by my guest, Dorothy Wickenden. Uh, but please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And from all of us to all of you who have shown your support, we thank you very much. And then, and we hope that you can join us for tomorrow's show when Rob Dunn, the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor for the Department of Biological Sciences at North Carolina State University, will discuss a new book that he has co-authored called Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human. We'll see you then. <laughs>